Hello and welcome to the third season of Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose, in which we talk to some very special people about food, what it means to them, and the role it has played in their life. We ask about food memories and favorite recipes, must-have ingredients, and the dishes that represent comfort, celebration, or adventure, and find out a lot more about our guests in the process. Hello. Hi, Alison. How are you? Hi, Jimmy. I'm all right, thank you. How about you? What have you been up to? Well, what I've been up to, as you well know, is uh, receiving more mysterious packages yeah. to try. <laughs> it feels like, um, yeah, it's it's kind of a lovely little uh, mystery unwrapping whatever you sent me in any given week. This is our Parcel. new thing where you are getting me to try various products. And this time it was a little bit more straightforward, or at least it seems straightforward because you sent me some, some raspberries. Yeah, some beautiful looking raspberries, but they're not, I'm guessing, just any old raspberries. No, these are British raspberries, and that's because uh, it's it's berry season. Uh, mm. All these British raspberries have been picked when they're just at the right time, so they're perfectly in season. They're yeah. sweet, they're not too sharp or tart. Mm. Um, try one, have one. Okay, all right. They're, they're, they're also massive as well. I mean, we've got the perfect climate for growing berries in Britain. They like the sunshine, but they don't like it too hot. So a bit cooler than continent is just what they need. And that's why they're so sweet. They thrive. Okay, here we go. Oh, wow. Mmm. You know, they, oh my are, God. they are delicious just to eat on their own as a snack. Mm. You're right. There's not... There's not the usual sort of instant tartness that you quite often get with raspberries. There's a lovely kind of soft, like, sweetness initially. And then the kind of acidity comes in really nicely at the end. I'm going to have another. They're not full of seeds mm. like like you associate with, like, raspberry jam and conserve. Wow. They're really, really good. And, and actually, I must confess, quite often, if I'm having raspberries on a granola with some yogurt, I will dribble sort of a little bit of honey on them because I'm kind of like... I've been burned too many times, ah. so to speak, with very tart raspberries. So that's my kind of little slightly shameful cheat. Well, these British raspberries don't need any extra sugar. In fact, no. they'd be great no. for a pavlova where you've got all of that sweet meringue at the bottom. And mm. then having that sweet but tart berry yeah. on the top, yeah. the raspberry on top would just counteract it. But they're great for breakfast with yogurt or even even as a, a savoury dish with a bit of rocket and mozzarella. You're blowing my mind here, Alison. Like with a, with a savoury salad, I would never think to do that. But you're right. I guess it makes sense. The sweetness and acidity that you'd get from a dressing, say, yeah. is, is kind of evident in these. But wow, they are really good. Well, we should probably talk about our guests rather than I guess we just should. talk about raspberries. This, I think, is uh, one of our favourite episodes and guests to date. It is John Waits, best known as winner of Series 3 of The Great British Bake Off, but he's also the author of five books. He appears on shows like Steph's Packed Lunch and just an all-round lovely human. He was, uh, he was great value, wasn't he? He's such a lovely man. You know, I've loved talking to him, but I've actually worked with him quite a bit before. He's written some beautiful recipes for us for Waitrose Weekend. And he's more recently created a really gorgeous rainbow layer cake for Pride Month. 
And that recipe was in Weekend and it's now on Waitrose.com. Yeah, the way he talked about the significance of pride, how it related to him kind of, you know, as a young sort of lad from Lancashire growing up on a farm in an environment where he didn't necessarily feel like he could fully be himself. And that journey he's been on, it was so great to hear. And the way that he talks about his kind of route to self-acceptance and embracing his Northern roots, both in his life and in his cooking, it was it was all so good. And I think there are a few kind of emotional moments uh, yeah. for me and I think for you as well. But we also laughed till we, till we cried as well. Very frank on mental health, on the importance of being yourself and you know just very honest about you know the things we don't see behind the gloss of 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 social media and things Mm. like that and it's such a lovely thing to hear so here we go here is our life on a plate conversation with john Waite. john Waite, thank you so much for joining us it's lovely to see you I feel like I always say this with people that we've met through things like the Bake Off, but obviously you've got your community online and your cookery school, but I feel like I know you. Like, I feel like, you know, you must must have this all the time. And particularly as it was, it's almost a decade now since you won Bake Off. It makes me feel so you know craggy and old and <laughs> it is nearly a decade it really is nearly a decade but yeah the beautiful thing about food is that people are interested in food you know it brings people together and that sounds like such a cheesy thing to say and I, I cringe when I hear it but food is a glue that brings people together and like you said it's a community and to meet my students at the cookery school to see pals on Instagram posting about their food it just it just makes you feel as though all the horror in the world, which is going on right now, it makes you feel as though there's, a, there's something that we have in common yeah, and something that we can latch on to and, and still communicate about. So yeah, 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 completely. Yeah. Just reflecting on that 10 years and, you know, you won the third series of the show, I think it was. Yeah, it was. When you look back at that, John, what are some of the biggest changes, oh, like both personally and in terms of your approach to food as well and baking and the things that you've kind of learned and and moved on from or left behind i think for me it's been a huge drop of pretense like when i came when i came into the the industry and when i was on the bake-off and stuff i was so as a person i was deeply insecure you know i was 23 and i kind of had to go through um go through that world you know from bake-off in the public eye at the same time as overcoming personal traumas. And, you know, I don't want to get too deep involved in, in it, but, you know, it was a really difficult process to actually to grow up basically, because it took me a while to grow up. So personally, it was, it's been, a, it's been a difficult journey um, since the Bake Off. You know, I'm still, I'm still very privileged and I've, you know, I've got great family yeah, and all of that, yeah. but, but the things that I've had to kind of overcome and, and, and through therapy and that kind of thing, it's been, it's been interesting, but yeah, going back to the question, pretense for me I tried to be a bit posher back then I tried to be a bit more of a food snob right right Um, I tried to create really elaborate recipes with all these ingredients in a kind of Ottolenghi style even though Ottolenghi is not snobby at all he's really very good (laughs) um you know I tried to I tried to fit in I I didn't really know who I was whereas now I know exactly who I am you know well at least the 2021 version of who I am and I'm comfortable with it I'm comfortable in my own skin for the first time in 32 years and that really percolates into the food that I create. It percolates into the way I teach at the cookery school. You know, celebrating my northern accent, that's something I used to try and 
quiescent and dampen. Whereas now I'm proud to be a, a working class ruffian <laughs> from Wigan. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, um, and I don't know if this ties into it, but you know, you grew up on a farm as well, and that idea of of that background and how that kind of shaped you and shaped your approach and stuff. Yeah, and- but the thing is, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned farming because I've I've found that in farming in traditional farming scenarios, it's often quite a hierarchical situation in in the family mm. but also on the farm itself it's very very traditional right right almost very very dickensian and i think that was kind of part of the problem for me is overcoming that kind of expectation from because farmers generally f- consider themselves i think fairly you know upper upper working class middle class so for me to kind of overcome that kind of expectation from my my, my farming parents i think that was part and parcel of it um, but the food side of it, on the flip side, you know, we learned to appreciate very basic food from a very early age. And we created that in an almost, I always consider farming food as like Italian food, very rustic. Right. Yeah. Let the ingredients speak for themselves. Not too many frills, that kind of thing. So, yeah, the farming food, the, the basic food was was always something to celebrate. But the, the kind of hierarchy of farm contradicts that right yes yeah yeah yeah, the sort of farming politics it was a dairy farm that you grew up on wasn't it it was a dairy farm so my first job when I was younger was to go and feed the calves Uh, so I used to have to get up at five o'clock in the morning put the my overalls on and go and feed the calves but I thoroughly enjoyed it you know to hear the calves especially in the winter time when you'd hear them breathing heavily in the barn and it was like blowing a gale outside and the barn door would be banging against you know in the wind it was just a very, very cosy, comforting experience. What kind of food did you have as a child? Very rustic food. So very lots of Lancashire hot pots. Mum's a okay. great cook, but she has no pizzazz or flair. She kind of threw threw things in the oven um, and she'd, she'd always cook with love. So in, in, I always think, you know, you can taste it when a mother cooks or a father cooks for you or someone who loves you. It doesn't have to be necessarily a parent, mm-hmm. but maybe someone you love. Uh, when they cook for you, you can always taste it, even if it's rustic. So mum used to cook a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of hot pots, a lot of roast pork, that kind of thing. Mm. And always a roast roast dinner on a Sunday. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. meaty. It was always a very meaty affair. Yeah. Was there ever a side of you that growing up in that life, you, you talk about it now with like real appreciation and feeding the calves and it sounds idyllic, but Minette Batters was a former guest on the show and she was talking about craving maybe mm. some of the normality that she saw in or perceived normality she saw in her friends' lives. Did you feel that as well? Were there times when you just kind of didn't want to be, uh, you know, a farm kid, as it were? Definitely. I think it was very much bittersweet experience mm. for me. It really was very bittersweet because on the one hand, we had this this land to kind of roam around and build dens and it was very mm. free and liberated. But on a personal level, you know, growing up gay in um, a kind of very anti-queer environment, Mm. Uh, traditionally anti-queer, you know, it was difficult because as beautiful as the freedom was, I was kind of a prisoner because I knew that I was gay, but I didn't want to express that. I didn't want to come out. I didn't want to to talk about it because of, I perceived that there would be great judgment and rejection from my family. Um, So yeah, it was bittersweet. Bittersweet is the perfect way to describe it because there was so much to be proud and happy about. But in the same time, it was quite a, a, a... an ex- it was an experience that really kind of diluted or made me at least depress my identity for a while. Was there a turning point? You've talked about your partner, Paul, uh, who you're engaged to. Was it him or maybe somebody else that made you think, yes, it's okay, there are people out there like me? No, I mean, I think 
as we kind of went to, you know, Manchester to Canal Street and started to meet like-minded people. Mm. But for me, this has only, it's really only been in the past few right, years. You know, right. Although I've been okay. an openly gay and I've spoken about it, I haven't, I still haven't been fully accepting of the fact that I'm, you know, here and queer and proud. And it really has only happened in the past couple of years. And I think that's because I think, you know, therapy, going through the therapy mm. for the mm -hmm. past 10, however many years has definitely helped. But just being comfortable in my own skin. Mm. And, 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 you know, I really hate the phrase self-care because it kind of conjures these images of candles and bubble baths, <laughs> whereas really self-care is much more disciplined and painful than that. You know, it's self-care is, is, is going through trauma, forgiving people, accepting, you know, weaknesses. But I think going through that process has really made me love who I am. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, it's, and, you know, it sounds cheesy, but it, it really... No, no, it, no. It's, no uh, yeah, it's, it's helped. Yeah. When does baking come into it for you then, like as a, as a kid? And was it, what was it about baking in particular and cooking in general that you were drawn to? I think on the one hand, it was very connective. It kind of connected me to mum. So I would bake a lot with mum after my parents divorced and when we moved into the farmhouse. And I think I had a deep rooted fear that I was losing my mum, perhaps, you know, she remarried and all of that. So I think the baking was a, a great way of connecting and, and staying in, in touch with her. We lived together, but staying emotionally connected, I mean. Um, but also I was obsessed with witches when I was younger. <laughs> and, you know, I wanted to be a witch. Every Halloween I'd dress as a witch. I'd have a broomstick, a cat, a little skirt on. And... Um, and I think for me, it started as an interesting kind of the alchemy baking in particular, you know, mm. so, so, you know, you put all these disparate ingredients into a pot and out comes a cake. Whereas when you make, you know, a roasted leg of lamb, it comes out as a roasted leg of lamb, nothing changes yeah. much. I mean, obviously the flavor and texture amplifies and is much improved, but with baking, it's like, it is witchcraft. Mm. It's, 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 it's really wonderful. And I still, I still love that. It's still really blows me away how you can you can make you know your sugar into caramel yeah. yeah or you can make milk and eggs into creme patissiere I, I love it so much and and i think it's, it's also about control i think in a time in life when i was feeling very much out of control baking you have to be very precise about you mm. have to be very um you know calculated accurate. and yeah. accurate exactly so for me it was that kind of a way of of, of keeping my hand on the on, on a rudder basically mm. Mm -hmm. Mm. The obvious question is, what kind of things were you baking? What kind of things were you cooking? Like the first things you were cooking? Well, it started with green microwavable cakes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I kid you not, because I remember that Mrs. Gore at high school, she would, we, we would learn how to make microwavable cakes, which is, you know, it's, if you want the cake in five yeah. minutes, it's fabulous. So how old would you have been about then? Oh, I was at high school then. So I must have been at least 11. Wow. So I used to bake with mum much earlier mm. than that when I was five, but that was kind of, you know, the, the butterfly cakes where you'd lob the top off and fill it with <laughs> floppy cream. But my kind of emancipatory baking, as, as we'll call it, perhaps where I was on my own, and, and yeah. you know, no rains at all was, yeah, when I was making green microwavable cakes. And I'm colorblind, you see, so I just grabbed wow. the first bottle of food color and, wow. and threw it, it in. in and just chucked <laughs> it in and hope for the best. I mean, you know, I, I did then branch out to pink and orange. and uh, <laughs> But, the, you know, that was the, yeah, the first bakes were left a lot to be desired. Yeah. The green seems like it, it uh, ties in nicely with the witch theme as well. Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> and then what did you progress to after after the microwavable cakes? Did you? Well, I didn't really, I didn't bake a lot during like my teens, my late teens. I didn't bake at all. 
in fact, when I got back, when I got with Paul and I was working in between, because I dropped out of university in, yeah. I can't remember when it was, I dropped out of, uh, of uni because I had, did not want to go. This was your law degree? No, this was, I went, I started off at um, St. John's at Oxford doing medieval right, and modern of languages. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't stand it. It wasn't for me. I didn't feel ready. I didn't feel perhaps emotionally prepared. I didn't feel like I'd be, I just didn't belong. Basically. Right. So during that gap here in my job, I found that I was getting really depressed. I was getting severely, severely depressed. Like I'd have to take a week off work. And I found that during that week off work, I would bake five or six cakes a day. And this was, I was living at home, so I had to do it in mum's arga. And I <laughs> wow. still, I can't, but I still haven't mastered baking in an arga. So everything was burnt, uh, you know, or undercooked or underbaked. But it, it was, the process of it for me was a very, very uh, spiritual, I think. And, you know, I've, I've, I think it is spiritual uh, for me. So what made you apply to Bake Off? I was watching the first and second series, and at this mm. at this stage, during the second series, I'd, I'd gone back to university, I'd gone to Manchester, so I was closer to home, and I was doing my law degree. We were watching Bake Off, Paul and I, and I found that every single time Bake Off was on, I would, whatever the technical challenge was, that night, I'd go to Waitrose, and I'd get the ingredients, and I'd do the technical challenge until, even if it was till one o'clock in the morning, I, would, I, would, I was obsessed wow. with it. You know, it was probably... You know, it was probably a bit, a bit much, but, and I just found that I, I just, I just thought I'm going to apply for this because I, you know, I knew I had a, a, a talent for baking. Yeah. Mm. I knew I enjoyed it. And I thought, let's just have a, let's have a bash. Yeah. That idea of being maybe a bit obsessive about things and wanting to know how things work and maybe a bit, you know, when you get an idea, you just kind of really go for it and you're all in. That seems to be something that pops up a lot in terms of your, like, you're kind of quite committed in a way that, maybe not everyone would be. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head that I am like a dog with a bone. If I get an idea, <laughs> I want to do it and I want to be the best at it. I want to be perfect at it. But actually, you know, in the past year, you know, having gone through this great personal epiphany of who mm, I am and yeah. stuff, mm. I've realized that that perfectionism, perfectionism in general, isn't about fulfilling your own desires. It's about pleasing other people. And as I've accepted that, I've realized that I'm much happier to be, you know, to make a fool of myself on TV or to make a recipe that is you know, perhaps a bit basic, but delicious. Mm. So I think I'm, I'm kind of separating myself from that, that, that negative perfectionism. Because, yeah. you know, on, on one hand, like you say, perfectionism can propel you. It can really make you competitive. It can make you want to achieve great things. And I think that will always stay with me because that's a personal, uh, yeah, that's, that's for me. But this idea of this pretense, you know, it's, it's separating myself from pretense again. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, happier to be a bit more slapdash and rustic <laughs> relaxing <laughs> into it a little bit because yeah, the thing yeah. that's that i again like looking at looking at your sort of biography and immediately after bake-off and you know you win the series and it's it's at the time that the show is really becoming this sensation i think and it's kind of that tipping point and then you go and study at uh, le cordon bleu you're famous and you've won this big popular show but for you, you still wanted to go and study and, and learn more. Yeah, I just, I mean, I wanted to be, to be, to, to learn because I always think, you know, I always value, I've always valued my education. Mm. Even though I dropped out of Oxford, I didn't want to be there. I've always valued being taught by the, the best people because I think sometimes, I think the, the risk with, with the show like Bake Off is that you win it and you might think, oh, I'm the, you know, I'm the bee's mm. knees, I can do anything. Mm. But actually, I think it's really important to, to always remind yourself that you aren't, Every day is a school day, as they say, mm. you know, you're learning new things. And if you can go 
to Cordon Bleu or to another cookery school and learn and learn new skills. That was my aspiration is to, to become a professional, basically, mm-hmm. to have that those foundation skills that would then set me up to write books, to write recipes, to to teach other people, to do TV. I wanted to be a professional. I didn't want to just be, you know, and that's no disrespect to other Bake Off winners yeah. who, who haven't gone on to study. You know, they they are no um, I'm no better than them in any way, shape or form, just because I've I've studied. But it was just, again, a personal aspiration, which is something I really, really wanted to do. And yeah, it was hard work. So let me tell you that. Goodness <laughs> yeah. me. I, I, I bet. I haven't done Le Cordon Bleu, but I used to work for Le Cordon Bleu. And I used to just see the assessments that the students used to do. And I'm in awe of anyone that has done the patisserie oh. course at Le Cordon Bleu. But I guess it's amazing foundations that it lays down. That's it. It's the foundations. Because when I was doing it, I think they've updated the recipes a bit more now, but they were very traditional, mm. very 70s, very French. <laughs> like we had to do sugar sculptures and boxes made of chocolate. And yeah. it was wonderful. It was great, great fun. But um, it, some of the stuff that I learned was just from another planet. You know, you would never <laughs> do it now in this day and age. But it was a wonderful skill, a wonderful skill set, great foundation. And again, discipline. You know, I'm a sucker for discipline. Although, you know, if you troll my social media, you might think this guy has no self-control and sometimes I don't. Uh, you know, I've posted things I'm embarrassed by, but that's just life. Um, but really, I am I am quite a disciplined and I'm quite a shy person as well. I'm quite, believe it or not, I'm quite introverted, quite shy and quite disciplined. The thing I always find fascinating about you and your recipes is you've done a lot of writing um, for me on Witches Weekend and also you've done videos for our social media channel. But you do a lot of savoury dishes too, and, and you've done more savoury books than sweet. What do you prefer? You kind of were known for becoming famous for baking, but savoury seems to play quite a huge role in what you cook. It does because you know I don't I don't eat cake every single day. I, um, I really do have to watch what I eat. Mm. Um, part of that's because I've got an eating disorder, mm. but mm. also you know it's probably perhaps not wise to eat cake every day. I don't know, but I do eat three square solid meals every day at least. You know, savoury ones, and yeah, I, I love cookery as well because it's I think it's so different from baking. Mm. You know, I mentioned it before about roasting a lamb; it stays as a, a lamb leg, or as baking is lots of different ingredients, and I love how. If I get a little bit perhaps bored, because I do get bored easily as well, mm. that's my problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. If I get bored of the baking side, I can then, you know, explore savoury. And savoury still, it's something that I'm exploring more and more. You know, baking, I think the the discipline of it, the ratios, I've got that yeah. down to a T. You know, I, I know what's what with the baking. But cookery, I'm still kind of in my toddler days with that. And that's exciting. Yeah. You mentioned there about having to watch what you eat and being kind of mindful of that. And you have been, yeah. you've spoken really, really beautifully and honestly about, you know, the struggles you've had with eating disorder and its connection to the mental health problems that you've also been, I think, really sort of vitally upfront and open about. And it's like completely to your credit. How have you sort of made it work when you're working in food? It must be such a, <laughs> it must be such a difficult thing. It is. It's about managing and recognizing triggers. So if I'm going through a particular period at work or in my life where I feel uh, that, you know, I'm, I'm out of control and out of, out, out of everything's sort of spiraling, I've noticed that that's when the bulimia will kick in. It's a, it's a coping mechanism. It's a kind of a, a strategy of staying in control. So it's just about recognizing those triggers and, you know, taking a step back. So I remember during Bake Off, for example, I was, well, it was after Bake Off when I was writing my first book, I was testing a recipe for some English muffins and it went completely wrong. 
And rather than just walk away and go and see a pal or have a pint, I just sat there, cried, and had, I forced all 12 of these muffins down and then had to go and, you know, purge. And uh, yeah, so it's just about recognizing that it's a frenzy, you know, bulimia is quite a frenzy. It's almost like a shark attack. It's that frenzy, like my eyes glaze over it. So I kind of just have to just breathe and take a step back. And this is something that you, I was just going to say, this discovery was made through talking to a therapist, right? And you kind of found exactly. out. Yeah, so you didn't know what this was until relatively recently. I knew it was, I knew it was, I knew it was, you know, I don't want to say abnormal, but I knew it wasn't wasn't perhaps healthy behaviour. So I I spoke to my therapist mo- mostly for my depression and for you know my anxiety. But I mentioned this, and through my therapy sessions, we don't actually really talk about the bulimia in a kind of CBT way. We don't try and deal with it. We talk about relationships, about the past, about things that perhaps mm. have triggered this lack of you know this 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 the way that I see myself and I see life. Um, and and yeah, therapy is so talking therapy is so important for an eating disorder. Mm. Uh, it really, really is. And I, I think I shied away from psychodynamic therapy uh, during lockdown one because it's such a heavy topic. You know, going back through your past and trawling, but you but you have to. You know, you really have to acknowledge those demons and go through trauma and and forgive it and let go of it. Yeah, you know? yeah. So ther- yeah, if anyone is listening and struggles with that, I just want to say to them, you know, you please speak to a professional about it. Yeah, no, it's really good advice. And I imagine have people been in touch with you and sort of, because you're talking about these things on Steph's Pack Lunch and, you know, in kind of mainstream forums and stuff. And it must be of real value to people that haven't haven't heard anyone, you know, there is so many stigmas around. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think the, the food industry, you know, people look at the food industry and think it's this gorgeous, you know, um, glitzy, glamorous mm. industry. But food food isn't about that food is about the not necessarily the celebrations we have not just the celebrations of food we have but also the struggles mm. we each have with food and mm. you know for even if you don't have an eating disorder particular foods can still trigger very horrible memories and uh, of childhood and that kind of thing because of you know where the olfactory bulb is in our head and you know it, it, tr- yeah. it triggers memories you know it, it physiologically scientifically triggers memories so yeah i think food food is a much broader subject than just you know the glamorous side of it it's 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 life food you know really is life and actually really rare for a, a man to speak out about an eating disorder well that's it and men mm. don't speak you know men yeah. men are much much more not afraid to speak but they've been conditioned not to this this idea of what manliness is and what you know it's nonsense it, you're a human being yeah even though there are so many more of these discussions happening today we've still got so far to go in terms of people being upfront and open about it and you know even on a very low scale i think of you know my male friends and they're the ones that have you know set ways of eating or on a keto diet or like you know it's kind of it's such a part of how all of us try to try to find balance in our relationship with food you mentioned there that obviously there can be some quite challenging or difficult uh, triggers or attachments that food or dishes have but then the flip side of that is obviously there can be such positive and happy associations what are the things for you that you crave that you love that that scream comfort oh i'm a sucker for anything with mm. melted cheese you know i love <laughs> melted cheese and yeah i kind of love uh, spanish mm. food as well um because I used to go on college trips to 
uh, like Santander and Salamanca. And I've spent the summer in Madrid once when I ran away as, as an unruly oh, wow. teenager. I ran oh, away hang to on, don't for stop. A summer. No, don't, don't just, yeah, don't just breeze past that. You've got to tell us a bit more about that. <laughs> Well, I went. I went originally. I went across to Salamanca to teach English to right. Spanish kids, and it was a one one or two week affair. And um, but then I met I met a Spanish Spanish <laughs> lad who I took an interest in, and so I ended up staying with him for longer than I ought to have done. And yeah, we used to eat the most incredible food, oh, and it was just yeah, Spanish food has got a real yeah, real place yeah. in my heart. Um, but you know, rustic Italian. Because the thing I love about Italian food as well is that people think. You know, the notions that we have here about spaghetti mm. and all that nonsense. Italian food is so regional and so even even within the regions, you've got families who will create yeah. food in a particularly yeah. different way. And there's a great Italian restaurant in Lancashire, actually, uh, in Gisborne called La Locanda, which is a really, really great one. Um, so, yeah, I love I love I love starchy carbs. I love cheese. Uh, yeah. No, you're uh, you're making me hungry just uh, just hearing you. To be honest, <laughs> you're talking about travel quite a lot there as well. And one of the things that Alison and I really wanted to talk to you about was in 2019, I think it was, where you went to Canada to volunteer on a farm. What happened there? I'd gone back to university. I'd actually gone back to do my barrister training because um, mm-hmm. you know I kind of thought that I had to. I had to please other people and become a barrister. This is post Bake Off. You know, per, I had five books out at the time. I was no, I was, I was working on my fifth book as I was in Canada actually and yeah so I I ended up getting pneumonia from stress and I had to drop out of the the law course and I kind of felt like I failed and I felt I felt suicidal you know I really really did think I was going to end it um and so me and Paul sat down and I said look I'm going to have to go away somewhere I don't you know I, I need to get out of the country I need to go away I want to go and be with nature and it was so weird because I went I just I applied to this this volunteer platform, an organisation called Woofing. So it's worldwide opportunities on organic farms. And the farm I got, uh, I was lucky enough to be put upon, um, was a farm where the woman was a, a nurse, and my mum was a nurse, right. but also a farmer. So there were so many parallels yes. with my. It was so bizarre, and I think yeah, I think they were very you know they were really strict. It was get up at half six, make breakfast, have coffee together out by seven o'clock have the have the animals fed um and it really was the most grounded experience because it was you know i'm, I'm not gonna lie it was privileged escapism you know you know I, 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 there are so many people in this country and in the world who would go through the same mental health issues that i've been through and wouldn't be able to afford to take the time to do that or leave the kids so you know i must acknowledge that it was privileged privileged entitled escapism um but i was lucky enough that i was able to do it and yeah working on the farm was just it was just so grounding, you know, to be to be with animals that re- re- relied entirely on on me to help them and, and to feed them and to clean them. I mean, it was a hard winter because I remember seeing the photographs that you did post while you were there on Instagram. You know, it was a hard winter and lots of snow and ice and breaking the troughs of water mm-hmm. so that the the animals could just drink for the day. And but that that was what I loved most about it is is exactly that. I remember the cows. I had to go drive the quad up to the cows every morning, mm. and every morning there'd be two or three inches of, of ice on top mm. of the water trough. So I had to use a piece of wood and just hack away, and then use my hands. And yeah, it was it was. I loved it. You know, it was like almost like Bim Hof. You know that cold water breathing technique. It was almost like that because you realised that you were. I got to know the cows. There was Pandora, Fergie, and Cash, and they'd come up every morning. Cash, the calf would come and lick my face as I was taking the ice out. And 
you know, there was no communication other than, well, there was communication. There was a great deal of communication with the animals, but there was no verbal communication. There was no expectation or, or judgment. And yeah. that, you know, for me, that was a really important thing. What was Paul's reaction to this, to something so extreme? You know, I, I guess he understood. Yeah, I guess he understood that it was, you needed something that extreme to, to respond to the extreme thoughts and feelings that you were having, clearly. He did. He, he, didn't, he, had, he, he had no judgment. All he, all he had was complete support. You know, I, he is an angel walking earth. He really is. He's the most down to earth, lovely human being anyone could ever meet. And I, he just, he was there, you know, he said, you, I'll look after the dog. I'll sort everything out, go and do it. Because I think, you know, he knew, like the animals, there was no judgment from him. You know, he knew he knew that I had to go and do it. Um, and he actually came out, he flew out to Canada for the last week of the farm and the farmers got to know him. And that was nice. also really nice because, the you know, the farm was in British Columbia in quite a conservative area. Um, so, you know, not everything goes there. And I said, to the, I said to the farmer, can I bring Paul out? And he was like, Dan, the farmer, was this really old kind of old school guy. And he was like, just don't be smooching in front of me. <laughs> so, you know... And, you know, I, I get that. You know, I get that's where he comes from. I understand that's they're his boundaries because that's what that's what it was for me. That's exactly what it was. Boundaries. Because boundaries in, in life, whether it's the bulimia, whether it's oversharing on social media, whether it's, you know, drinking too much, for example, it's all about boundaries. And that's that's what the farm was. It was it was one big boundary. We mentioned earlier that you are uh, shy, even though people would not really see it. But one of the more recent things I saw was you cooking naked on a Steph's pack lunch <laughs> with uh, just an apron on. So uh, that that was um... yeah. We had some nudists on, and so one of the producers, uh, Lucy, who is a really really wonderful producer, she said, "Let's get everyone naked." So Steph, you know, Steph. The beautiful thing I love about Steph is that I've worked with loads of different presenters. But she is just so down to earth. She's a pal. She texts. She's daft. She's sometimes rude. And it's just such a lovely show to be part of. Yeah. So when they asked me to cook naked, I kind of thought, when I heard that former Home Secretary, Alan Johnson, was going to be naked, I thought, well, then I've got to do it. But also, you know, it's about about body image and about celebrating mm. that kind of thing. And I, I'm under no illusions, you know, although I'm trying to, the, the bulimia is in control. Um, in a way, you know, the, the, my bodybuilding and that, you know, exercise, I know that that's just another form of the bulimia. So it's, I've got to be careful with that, you know? Yeah. We should go back to the bodybuilding. So I don't think you've talked about this. This isn't, this is another new thing that you've kind of gone all in on. Uh, weight training seems like it's a, it's been a big part of your experience and it's kind of, it's quite annoying because, you know, we all had these plans about lockdown and emerging as new kind of felt ripped people. And it looks like you've actually done it, John, which is uh, infuriating. Like, you look amazing. Well, I think, again, it was about control during lockdown. You know, my cookery school was on the verge of collapse uh, because we didn't get any government help, oh, no, unfortunately, no, nothing that. at all. Mm. No, it's all right. We're, we're still we're, we're coming back in July. Um, but I, I had I had to do something, mm. you know, it was either drink two bottles of vino verde a night <laughs> or to uh, to actually control myself and so it was it was bodybuilding and i found for me when i when i work out i listen to either classical music or yoga music mm. very very slow mm -hmm. slow music and it, it's a kind of meditation mm. again i have to be careful because the body image thing and, yeah, and that of kind course, of, of course. dysmorphia yeah. you know plays into it 
But yeah, bodybuilding and CrossFit is, I, I absolutely love it. Mm. And I used to be so anti-sport, <laughs> but I'm discovering that John Waite is a completely different person. Yeah, to, 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 to who, who you I thought, thought he was. was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I like him, yeah. you know. <laughs> That's really good. And does Paul, does Paul join you with the exercise no, no, as well? No, 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 We don't, we don't. We don't. No, he's if, not. <laughs> we, if we work out together in the gym, we often fall out uh, because, <laughs> okay. yeah, it, it, when it comes to when it comes to deadlifting, he he has not got he doesn't want to do it right, let's put it right, that way right. and okay. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a control freak so yeah and what about cooking does he do you allow him in the kitchen I'm, I'm ashamed to say this on a, a Waitrose podcast but <laughs> when when at the end of lockdown when sort of towards the end of, of winter last this year he was doing all the cooking and every single night apart from weekends we would just eat chili beef chili because it was packed with protein <laughs> it was easy and he would just make yeah. a giant batch at the start of the week and then we'd just live off that for the week and you know because I kind of there are times in life when I, I can't face cooking yeah. you know I really I can't face it so yeah he's he, him taking care of me was making a giant batch of chili but that answers one question because during last year you were doing a recipe a day on Instagram or it seemed that's what it felt like I was watching you on your stories posting and I was like thinking he's doing he's doing all that How's he cooking dinner as well? When he's kind of, but now, now I know. <laughs> Beef chili. It was in the fridge, ready to go. <laughs> you mentioned the cookery school there, which, which again is another thing about you know your post Bake Off career that I think is quite striking and quite admirable that you sort of took what seemed to be like a different path, like as you were in this kind of huge position of fame and you know power and opportunity, and you kind of were. We're looking to to pay it forward. It seems like obviously setting up a business, but you wanted to to teach other people, and that felt like a full circle moment as well because you worked on it with your family, and it was on the farm, wasn't it? It was on the farm you grew up. Yeah, it's on the farm that um, where we grew up, and we spent eighteen months renovating it because it's an it's an old uh, grade two listed barn, wow. so we had to have all these different surveys, you know, a bat survey, owl survey, a highway survey. So it took a long, long time to renovate this barn. And it was, it was, it was a barn. It was where cows were milked up until the 19th, until the 1950s. We, my family used to milk cows in this wow. barn. So, mm. you know, there's a lot of cleaning to do. And uh, yeah, I just, I don't know. I kind of wanted to set up the cookery school because I, you know, I've always, although I am a, a bit of a traveler and I, you know, spiritually and physically, I like to roam. I always still need an anchor. I always need that security. And I think for me, the cookery school was, it, it was also a great way of, 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 of kind of not wasting money. You know, I wanted to invest some money in, in property and in, in a business. And I kind of wanted to just be a bit more sensible um, because I straight after Bake Off, it was a bit wild, you know, I'd, I'd be a bit lavish and silly and I don't, I don't regret it, but perhaps I could have been a bit more sensible. Uh, and so it, I think, yeah, part of the growing up process for me was to open the cookery school. But I, you know, I love it. I love teaching people. I love the interaction, you know, on a cold, crisp winter morning mm. to have 10 strangers or, you know, sometimes familiar faces now too. But to have 10 people and me crowded around the kitchen island and, you know, we create, they always come in and in winter, I always give them a slice of pumpkin, spiced pumpkin and whiskey loaf. Oh, wow. And the candles are always oh, lit. Nice. And we always just, yeah, we just, we just, spend the day being silly but learning new things yeah. from, from each other yeah and then we have a few drinks at the end and it's just 
it's community. You know, it's 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 belonging. It all comes down to identity and to belonging and to and to to mutuality and respect and. Yeah, that's what's so beautiful about food is that it, it embodies all of those values. Well, it does seem like that return to home and not just kind of physically, but spiritually has been kind of a big part of, of your story. And I know that you did you were, you did live in London for a while, didn't you? And was it? I did. Yeah, we loved it. Yeah. What was the decision of going back? Because it feels like it's really important. And, you know, we started off talking about you kind of embracing your northernness as well and that being a big part of the recent years i think that's exactly it i think it's as i kind of came to terms with my identity and and who i am and and started to learn learn exactly that you know my identity i think i just wanted to be at home I, i love london for its diversity for its restaurants for its markets for its people but for me being cozy and quiet around my log fire at home with my dog <laughs> my partner that's all i want from life yeah. you know all the work i do mm. you know I, even i love tv work and i love writing books but it's all just so that i can have a quiet life with my partner yeah yeah and that's the, that's the most important thing and that's my anchor that's the anchor that i've been looking for all my life is exactly that just at home you and paul have been together for quite a long time 13 years mm. yeah wow yeah. 13 years. So he he was with you before you did Bake Off and Yeah, he's 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 witnessed these multiple transformations. <laughs> but I, you know, I think you know it's, it's re- I, we always laugh and say it's remarkable that we're still together because I like I said I get bored so easily and I always chop and change who I am, you know, I'm like Adam Ant basically, you know, I'm, or Madonna, yeah. I'm constantly changing my image, but the one thing that's been consistent in my life is is Paul, you yeah, know? It's yeah, Paul. yeah. Doesn't he do the designing for your books? Yeah, he designs them, but sometimes, like the the comfort, for example, comfort my um my, yeah. my book on comfort food. I designed the cover of that. He put it. He obviously put it together. But I said, this is what I want. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we work really well together because he is he he can he can interpret what it is I'm trying to express. And he knows yeah, me yeah. and he's so calm and patient about it. You know, don't get me wrong. Sometimes we'll fight, you know, fight uh, all night long, <laughs> shouting at each other if we can't agree on a subject. <laughs> You're just a normal We're couple. We're a normal couple. We're normal, but you know, I always win. I always win. <laughs> no, no, but, I'm kidding. But that, um, that notion of, you know, I mentioned it before, but like talking about your relationship with Paul and it is just, you only need to look at a few interviews with you to see that he has been this constant in your life and kind of support throughout all the things that you've gone through again just contrasting with what you talked about where you were younger and you were kind of struggling to kind of find yourself and looking for kind of you know echoes of the person that you that you saw yourself as like it's such an important thing and you create this cake with waitrose a rainbow cake for pride yes well we wanted to celebrate you know the lgbtqi plus community we want to celebrate queerness we want to celebrate diversity because you know growing up in a conservative farming background for me as i've said you know it was it was very difficult to to embrace uh, sexualities and cultures and all of that you know it was kind of it was it was a taboo to even talk about that kind of thing and as i've come on this i hate this phrase so much but spirit spiritual journey you know as i've, <laughs> as I've grown up I've realized that being queer and embracing that is such an important thing. Yeah. And and pride, you know, I used to think pride was just a big throbbing drunken festival. <laughs> and you know, there is part of that to it. But mostly pride is about saying to any minority, we love you, we hear you, you are welcome here. And, you know, I, I, I can't talk about this without getting emotional because 
especially with the with the rainbow flag, you know, the the, the original emblem of of, of 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 the gay community and the queer community was a pink triangle, mm. which was what was sewn onto the outfits of of prisoners in the in in Nazi Germany. You know, queer prisoners, and we embraced that for a long time in our community. Um, and then after the, the the riots, which started the, the gay pride events worldwide, a guy called Gilbert Baker in San Francisco redesigned what the gay flag would be, and that is the the rainbow flag. And that has recently undergone a bit more of transformation to be even more inclusive. Mm. And mm. you know, only in the past few years have I seen that flag as a life raft. You know, it is about identity and about acceptance and about love and it's 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 getting rid of that little voice in my head from when I was a child that would say don't be too gay you know don't do that you've been too gay right it's it's not listening to that voice anymore it's saying be as gay as you want lad <laughs> and i'm so i'm so proud to have been asked and and to to have created the recipe for waitrose because it's a great platform to 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 to, to educate people yeah. on this subject. It's a mm. great platform to to share a really good recipe. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> it's a beautiful recipe. It's a gorgeous recipe, isn't it? It's delicious, and you know you, we've got the video of you making it, so you can follow your guide and hear more about you talking about how to do the cake and the meaning of pride to you as an individual. And it's also online too, so it's, yeah. like, it's, it's just a fantastic, beautiful cake. And I use I use a great technique in it with them. Um, it's not it's not a technique I invented, and I wouldn't want to you know to 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 claim that. But it's a, a technique where you use two acrylic discs to to put the buttercream mm. on the cake, and it makes it so neat mm. and perfect and perhaps perfection is and something I should, I should avoid <laughs> should these days but <laughs> when it comes to cakes i think pride cake needs to be perfect before you go there's a question that i ask everyone i'm basically really nosy and have to know if they have a store cupboard ingredient that's a must-have in your house the old pretentious me you know <laughs> that, the, the guy who was trying to impress people would say something something really obnoxious but i think for me it's just got to be either a bottle of worcester sauce or a bottle of sriracha that's all i want you know either that or a bit maybe this is a bit more pretentious but a bit of miso paste mm. goes a long way i've also got a kitchen grill for you to ask 10 quick questions right let me limber up get myself <laughs> limber up tea or coffee coffee Mash or chips? Chips. Fruit or veg? Veg. High tech or wooden spoon? High tech. I can't believe I just said that. I feel like I've abandoned all my morals and my virtues, but yeah, high tech. Sight or aroma? Aroma, because it's so, you know, smell Mm. triggers instantly Mm. memories, Mm. you know. Ice cream or sticky toffee pudding? The STP. It's the little black. I always call it the little black, the little black dress of the uh, of the dessert world. It's good. The LB, it's good. S- STP. The LBD. Fried or poached? Fried. Sofa supper or restaurant meal? Sofa supper with a blanket, a log fire, and a nice bottle of wine. Baguette or sourdough? Baguette. Ficelle in particular. Mm. You know the string Ooh, baguette. Nice. Oh, I love nice. a Ficelle. Very yeah. good. Butter or olive oil? Mm. Butter. Nice. Butter, 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 all the way. Thick slice of it. Uh, yeah. That's it. That's Amazing. the kitchen grill done. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just a way of being nosy. Alison just privately logs and collates the uh, the answers and comes up with her own. <laughs> yeah, this doesn't actually go, yeah, on, the, yeah, doesn't yeah. go on the podcast. It's just Alison's own. <laughs> it's, just, it's just for Alison's records. Well, John Waite, thank you so much for joining us. It's been 
such a beautiful, emotional, honest, funny conversation. And it's just great to see you kind of almost a decade into our time of thinking we knew you emerging <laughs> in this wonderful, fantastic way. It's been an honor, honestly. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. You've been listening to Life on a Plate from Waitrose. I'm Jimmy Famarewa. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavy, and our guest, John Waite. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find lots more like it by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the series, go to waitrose.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>